0: Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon.
1: I'm reading from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 24 through 45. After those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion, she said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I had endured among my people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, greetings, favored one, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who, has said to be, who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. The word of God for the people of God.
0: It seemed to me, it seemed to be standing in a bus queue by the side of a long, mean street. Evening was just closing in and it was raining. I had been wandering for hours in similar mean streets, always in the rain and always in evening twilight. Time seemed to have paused on that dismal moment when only a few shops have lit up and it is not yet dark enough for their windows to look cheering. And just as the evening never advanced to night, so my walking never brought me to the better parts of town. However far I went, I found only dingy lodging houses and small tobacco shops, windowless warehouses, good stations without trains, and bookshops of the sort that sell the works of Aristotle. I never met anyone, but for the little crowd at the bus stop, The whole town seemed to be empty. I think that was why I attached myself to the queue. I had a stroke of luck right away, for just as I took my stand, a little waspish woman who would have been ahead of me snapped out at a man who seemed to be with her. "Oh, very well then, I won't go at all. So there. And she left the queue. Pray, don't imagine, said the man in a dignified voice. Don't imagine that I care about going in the least. I've only been trying to please you for peace' sake. My own feelings are, of course, a matter of no importance. I quite understand that. And suiting the action to the word, he also walked away. Come, I thought, that's two paces gained. <laughs> These, of course, are the first words of a short little book called The Great Divorce. It was written by C.S. Lewis in 1945. The scene carries on and on as the narrator continues to observe the line and move up place by place as the bickering and arguing of other line standers sends them to scurry off in different directions. It is a scene that has been seared in my memory since I first read it probably 20 years ago in a Christian classics course. By the time the bus arrives, the the people standing in line are of course waiting for a bus, by the time the bus arrives, the line is greatly diminished due to everyone's dreary attitudes. But the bus driver though, in stark contrast to everyone in line, seems almost joyful. C.S. Lewis describes him as full of light as he arrives, driving the bus with one hand on the wheel and another hand kind of going like this to get all the smoke and the fog, the dreariness out of the way so that he can see and pull the bus safely into the station. Observing his joy, though, the line waiters said the nerve. Who does he think he is to show up like that? Who does he think he is with such audacity to be joyful in a dreary place such as this? What tricks does he have up his sleeve? Just who does he think he is? I wonder sometimes if that's what people might have thought if they had been there at Elizabeth's house that day. When Mary came knocking at the door and greeted her cousin there, who do they think they are to be joyful in moments like these? It was the time of Roman rule when peace was established and the land through military might and the religious institutions were in bed with the government. Women didn't have a place in the world. They didn't have a place of authority or even autonomy. They were subject to the governance of the men in their lives. How dare they find joy in moments like these? Who do they think they are? At home, Zechariah's voice was gone. Elizabeth, with her geriatric pregnancy, and Mary, now an unwed teenager, expecting as well. A new life is always something to celebrate. But like this? Under these circumstances? I'm not so sure. For Mary, there were a million reasons to retreat, to isolate and try to make sense of it all. Maybe try to make a plan. There was a litany of logical reasons for her to be afraid and anxious. You know, women were stoned for lesser crimes than this. If she dared speak the truth about how she found herself in this predicament, people might begin to talk. You know, they might even say she had gone mad. And what about Joseph? What in the world was he going to do with a fiancé carrying news like this? There were a million reasons to keep this good news to herself, for Mary to withdraw and hide away until she could wrap her mind around it, until she could work out a safe plan. But Mary doesn't back down. Mary doesn't retreat at all. In fact, she does quite the opposite. She immediately puts her feet to the path and travels the 80 mile journey from Nazareth to Elizabeth's home in the Judean countryside. Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of insight as to the the inner workings of Mary's mind or details about how this long journey actually happened. We do not know some of the questions with which Mary wrestled. Surely she had some big ones. I know I would. We do not know who, if anyone traveled with her on those long 80 miles, it would have been dangerous and unheard of for a young woman to make that trip alone. And so we have to wonder who accompanied her. What was she thinking? And while we may never know the fullness of that story, what we do see plain and clear in the text is evidence of her courage, evidence of her resolve, and her choice to rejoice, even when the source of that joy itself could have been seen as quite the scandal. So Mary positions herself away from fear and despair and starts that long walk toward the one person who can share in this scandalous incarnation of joy. And let us be very clear, this joy is not only scandalous because of the bodies through whom it will be delivered, an old woman long past her time, and an unmarried girl not ready to be a mom. These facts alone would make this joy audacious. But there is so much more to that which is being born here. You see, the thing is, when the angels announce these two miraculous pregnancies, it is clear that these will be no ordinary children. These two will not fit safely into the status quo. No, they will oppose it. They will challenge it every chance they get. John will prepare a way for the coming of the Messiah. He will be a prophet in the likes of Elijah who urges people to repent, to change their ways, to turn and face God. And Jesus, the son in Mary's womb, will be the Messiah for whom John prepares the way. And people will call this child the son of God and his kingdom will replace all kingdoms. This kingdom will be ushered in by Mary's own son, the one who will be called the Prince of Peace. And that prince, that kingdom, will reign forever. You can begin to see why this particularly exquisite joy needs to be contained, right? You know, current kings don't appreciate rivals, They are not keen to usher in new kingdoms. They like the current kingdoms just fine. Well, just like religious people and religious institutions do not like to be told that they too need to turn, need to change, need to repent. These are dangerous pregnancies. These are dangerous prophecies signaling new realities, and new realities are not often met without resistance and without resentment. So the joy that caused that baby to leap in Elizabeth's womb is an audacious joy. It is a defiant joy, a scandalous joy, a stubborn joy. It is a persistent joy that sticks around and looms in places that conventional joy left behind. This is precisely the kind of joy that Dr. Willie James Jennings finds in the stories of his African-American ancestors. It is joy that echoes the liberating joy found throughout Scripture, beginning with the Exodus narratives, and it is perpetuating this kind of joy that Willie Jennings believes is the pathway to peace. And friends, if we are aware of the state of things uh, these days, I believe we ought to pay attention to just about anything that could be a pathway to peace. That's when you say amen. Thank you. So how could joy be a pathway to peace, we might ask? Well... First, we have to sort of reframe the way that we think about joy. We might be accustomed to thinking about joy like we think about happiness. As such, joy is kind of a feeling, an emotional response to the positive circumstances, to the comfort that we find in our lives. But that is not real joy. No, that's something less, something else. Real joy, according to Jennings, is not emotion. But get this, joy is work. Joy is not an emotion, but joy is work, he says. It is profound work. It is a profound work of improvisation. And improvisation is never just making things up. It is working with the given, the broken, the fragment, the gestures of those who have gone before you and those who surround you now, those engaged in their own work of improvisation. Friends, sharing in the gift of work and the gift of joy In this improvisational work of joy, we are constantly moving and twisting and turning between despair and surviving, despair and thriving. In this work, we are choosing to live with an oppositional joy that stands against the existing and segregated order that is laid out in front of us as status quo. This joy work makes pain productive, without justifying or glorifying that suffering. And it is precisely this kind of choice toward joy, choice toward healing, choice toward improvisational living that we find in the life and ministry of Jesus, who in the Gospel of John says, Just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Love one another, he says. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And here's the clincher. Jesus looks at those around him, those who have shared an improvisational ministry from the beginning, and he says, I have called you friends. This joy that was implanted in the very bodies of Elizabeth and Mary had begun its work and called them together as cousins and friends. Mary and Elizabeth, they had to be together as friends, so that they could share in the work of joy. Maybe they needed one another for strength and resolve so that they could find joy in the midst of fear. Maybe their joy for one another allowed them to experience their own joy, joy for their own personal experience. In that way, don't you see, joy becomes a sort of bridge. Joy that the one has for the other empowers the other to have joy for themselves. Joy becomes a bridge. Have you ever experienced something like that? Have you ever been a part of that kind of work? Have you ever had a friend? Have you ever been a friend? Have you ever made a friend as you shared or upheld joy for one another? Maybe take a moment right now to see those friends in your imagination and to give God thanks for that gift. The book by C.S. Lewis that I started out with today, The Great Divorce, it begins with uh, that, that description that I read just a few moments ago a, dre- a gray and dreary world void of relationship, ripe with bickering, angry interactions. Even in the line, the one place where people came together, there was conflict which sent them right back apart into further isolation and separation. Distance grew between the people, and as the story progresses, you see more of Lewis's vision for that gray and dreary place houses further and further apart. People more and more isolated. And as the story progresses, we learn that this is Lewis's imaginative description of hell. But there are other scenes in the book that take place in a totally different kind of landscape, one that's green, one that's growing. And this landscape, of course, is heaven. And as the scenes that take place in this landscape progress, you begin to see that people in those scenes struggle with the heaviness, the realness of their experience. But people in that heavenly space move in a different direction. In hell, they move like this, but in heaven, they move toward one another. Instead of moving further and further apart, the people in the heavenly scenes are drawn toward one another, just like Mary and Elizabeth were drawn together. Now in the preface, Lewis is very clear. This is fiction. But fiction still speaks, doesn't it? It makes me think more about the connection between joy and improvisation that Dr. Jennings uh, put forth for us. And it made me think about the show, a comedy show. Have you ever seen it called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Anybody watch that show? Good, okay, not alone. I think it's one of the funniest shows that there is, honestly, and no matter what kind of day I've had, no matter the mood I'm in, that show, unlike a lot of other funny shows, that show can always make me laugh. And as I've been thinking about it this week, about what makes that show so special, it, it makes me wonder if, like if improv would be funny at all if it were just monologues. Can you imagine just one person trying to make something up out of nothing? It's so much funnier when people have to deal with the brokenness, right? The reality, the stuff that's just handed to them. I think that's the way improv works, both for the show and in our spiritual lives. Listen to what Jennings said. Improvisation is never just making things up. It's working with what is given. It's working with the broken, the fragment, the gestures of those who have gone before and those who surround you now, those who are engaged in their own work of improvisation. Could it be Could it be that the holy work of joy, the spiritual gift of joy, Jesus' joy, is a joy that opens us up rather than closes us off? Could it be that the very form of joy and pleasure and contentment and comfort that we imagine in our enclosed spaces can actually grow, becoming something far richer, far more beautiful, far more pleasurable as it is expanded and constituted, made up of some of the very people who we imagined to be part of our despair? What if joy brings us together rather than separating us? If so, could it be that joy as both gift from God and work for us is a bridge that can span our differences and our pain and our sorrows, leading us to creative solutions that we never thought possible before? In short, could it be that joy, or joy work, I should say, could it be that joy work is peace work? Could it be that joy work is peace work? Could learning to share in one another's joys lead to peace in our personal relationships, peace in our local communities, peace in our churches, peace in our politics, maybe even peace in our nation, and maybe, just maybe, even peace on all the earth? Could it be? At first it might sound like a little bit of a stretch, but just think about it. Think about your friends. Think about the ways that they hold you up, the ways they hold you together, the ways that they're there for you in times of joy and in times of pain, feeling with you and for you, giving you permission to feel however you feel giving you validation, making you feel seen and known and loved. That kind of friendship is transformational. And I would dare to say it is also holy. Remember the words of Jesus? who called his disciples friends and then told them to go and love the way that he loved. What if we took that part of scripture seriously? What if Christians around the world were known first and foremost as friends? Friends, improvisational people who were used used to working with things that were broken, given, fragmented, and incomplete. Whew. Can't think of a better list of descriptors of our world today. So, what if we, in working with all that is broken, were committed to joy work? Work which turns away from despair. Work which leads to and enables healing and surviving and thriving together. Not as enemies in competition with one another. Not as foes working against one another. Not as people who are characterized by our differences but as friends, bonded together in the sharing of our joy. Can you even imagine that kind of world? Well, Jesus did. And friends, I think that God still does. Love one another as I have loved you. For I have called you friends. Amen.